you would take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are studying John, but I want us to start off in 2 Corinthians 11, and then we'll get to John uh, chapter 1. Last week, we tried to do four verses, and sometimes I'm foolish. Um, we could only get to two, and so uh, we're going to finish up those two verses uh, today uh, that we didn't get to last week, but we need to foundationally see where we were last week, in case you weren't here, um, so that we can put everything together and understand everything within the context. We looked at 2 Corinthians 12 last week, and we will deal with that in a moment, but I want us to look at something in 2 Corinthians 11 that kind of connected with 12 to, to give us some perspective on this. And so last week, we looked at verses 15 and 16, and this is what John said. So we came out of verse 14, and John the Apostle said, And John, speaking of John the Baptist, bore witness about Christ. And he cried out, and he said that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then in 16, John the Apostle wrote, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so we established last week that this preposition grace upon grace in the Greek means this instead of or in replace of and we we looked at last week that there's not a moment of our lives when things are good when things are in between when things are really bad and in in whatever situation it is here's what God does because of the cross and because Christ came and he bore our sin and he laid his life down that there's not a moment in a Christian's life where it says, for from His fullness we have all received, that we all are Christ followers. It's not people who, who are enemies of God. Every child of God, we have all received grace upon grace, which means this, in any and every situation, this is what God does. In this situation, God gives grace. There's a new situation that arises, God gives grace. Something else comes up, God gives, guess what? Grace. Something else comes up, God gives grace. This word that John writes, grace upon grace, means that instead of grace, with our new need, God gives grace. And in this situation, instead of grace, God gives grace. And so there's not a moment, whatever it is in our lives, where our lives are not surrounded by, undergirded by, in something called grace. Now, grace is... The unmerited favor of God, active, moving in the lives toward those who don't deserve it. That's why we call it amazing grace. Because it is absolutely, literally amazing. It is given by God who is holy to people who are not holy. And has been given to them in movement and activity of God to bring us into the family of God. Grace is actually a person. Titus 2 talks about that. For the grace of God has appeared, speaking, Paul writes, Jesus. And so the activity of God was so great that God, Christ, left heaven, movement, came to earth and was born and lived here. And so all of our lives are surrounded by this reality of grace instead of grace. Grace upon grace. Grace in the place of grace. And God knows any and every situation. I tell you today, that is incredibly exciting today. Because I don't know about you, I am my worst enemy. Ryan Phillips isn't my worst enemy, I am. Ed Benninger's not. Satan, 
doesn't care anything about me, but I don't have to give in to that. My worst enemy is for me not to surrender my life to Christ and allow this grace upon grace to fill my life and to move me deeper into a relationship with Christ. And so Paul, by the way, maybe if we could have a Mount Rushmore of Christians, we'd probably put him on there. Paul loved God. I mean, Paul was amazing. Wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. About half the New Testament had come through the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's read how he learned about grace upon grace. 2 Corinthians 11. Look with me, and I want us to start at... How about 24? No, 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Am I talking like a a madman with far greater labors and far more imprisonments? Listen to the stuff that happened in Paul's life. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes Less one. Now look up here just for a moment. Five times. You know how many times Jesus went through this? Once. It was pretty significant with Christ. Here's Paul. Five times all over the world he took the gospel. They ripped off his clothes. They took something called the cat of nine tails. And they would whip him. It, would, it was full of, on the end of this, nine balls out there it, it, um, with, with stone and iron and, and bone and things of that nature. And they would pound you, it pound into you, in the, in the beginning just bruising you, and then eventually it would begin to dig into your flesh. Five times Paul encountered that. His back likely was just one big, huge scar. So five times that happened. Look at 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and a night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, listen to this, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. All right, now look up here. I would like to propose something to us this morning. Can we put to death the idea that the Christian life is about comfort? Can we? Yeah, but but we're American Christians. God, God's about blessing only. Is there something deeper in life than comfort? There is. And it's called grace upon grace. Go to chapter 12. So Paul has had these incredible visions. He talks about them in the first part of chapter 12. And you could get pretty prideful to say, I saw God in heaven. (laughs) Pretty awesome. And so look what Paul writes, verse 7 of chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing revelations, the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my what is sufficient? Let's say it out loud. My what? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And here's what I want to put forth for us, because this is how we closed last week. When John the Apostle writes, in our lives, here's what God does, that there's not a moment of our lives when we're pleading with God, God, you have got to come through. I don't know what to do, God. There's a grace God gives in that moment. There's a grace in the moment when God says, I'm not going to do anything about that. You're going to live with that. There's a grace that He gives to live with it. There's a grace that He gives when we're so excited about the activity and the movement of God. There's a grace that just enhances the joy. And then many of us have come to know this. There is a grace that comes in our lives in the darkness of life where we don't know what to do, that God gives a grace in that situation upon grace that sustains us. And here's what I want to say to us, and it's what the Apostle John says. It's what Paul learned from his own life. Is there something better than comfort? And it's called grace. It's the unmerited, loving favor of God at work in the lives of people who do not deserve it. Can I get an amen? And we could shut the thing down today and just stop right there, but we got a lot of stuff to do. And so here, go to John 1 now. And from that idea of grace upon grace, John is going to contrast and give us more reasons why this life in Christ is amazing. John 1, and we're going to put 15 through 18 together so we can see this. So 15, John bore witness about him, 115. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here's the first point this morning if you're taking notes. Last week we looked at that Jesus was greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was greater than all the prophets. John the Baptist came to speak and prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. All of the prophets of the Old Testament, they proclaimed, received word from God to go tell the people to point to the coming of Jesus. And so he's greater, Jesus is, than all the prophets. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And now... John the Apostle is going to tell us Jesus is greater than Moses. The Jews loved Moses. Moses was this unbelievable leader. God had given the law to Moses to give to the people. And so the law had become this shaper for them, this guide for them. And God had, had revealed more about what he expected and who he was in the law. 
But though Moses was given this, and though it was really important for the Jews, the law could not ever bring permanence in regard to forgiveness. It can never bring permanence. And so year after year, what did they have to do? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And there was never a permanence that ever came. And so John is wanting us to see is that Jesus is not a contemporary of anybody in the Bible. Though he was a man. He was the God man. And so he is different than you and I. He's different than Moses. He's different than John the Baptist. He is greater than they were. Now let's talk about the law just for a moment. The law was the law was is is and was harsh. It just said this: do this, do this, do this, and you can't do it. You're not going to fulfill it. You can't keep it. The law was written in stone tablets. I mean, that's how hard and harsh the law was. Written in stone. Follow this. We couldn't follow it. The law held everyone guilty and account- accountable with no remedy that could last. Couldn't keep all of it. It pointed out our failures and then didn't have the power to help us in our failures to follow through in obedience. Now, the Old Testament, I will say, is manifest with the grace of God in the lives of people. But for the most part, the law did not have any grace connected with it and the beauty of the gospel is this reality is that it is different than the law because grace and truth came in a person came in a body embodied by God himself in the person of Christ so why is John introducing this idea for the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is contrasting, I think, this picture of, don't mishear me, the law is the word of God, God gave it. It's the word of God. But the law could not bring about, the law's purpose was to show that there was something better and more permanent that was going to come. You cannot keep this and so the idea likely with John using this was not to deal with a controversy where Paul talked about the law a lot because Paul was dealing with in the middle of the first century all kinds of false teaching and heresies connected with that John seems to want to do this he wants to say this that the law brought about death because we couldn't fulfill it and there's a blackness in a sense to it and then now in the New Testament God through Christ, who is a light, wants to paint the canvas and highlight the beauty of the glory and the colors of Christ. So the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. Andreas Kostenberger wrote this about this text. He said, rather than offend the gospel's Jewish audience, this verse is designed to draw it in. If you want an even more gracious demonstration of God's covenant love and faithfulness, the evangelist tells his readers it is found in Jesus Christ. So John is saying, if you thought that God's gift of the law through Moses was a great thing, and it was, he has given us a greater gift now through Jesus Christ. I'm pointing out a few few other things in regard to Jesus being greater than Moses. Moses was the one through, through whom God gave the law 
to his people, but Jesus Christ is the one through whom he has manifested salvation and grace and truth to us. Listen to these scriptures about the law, Romans 4.15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Acts 15.10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We've not been able to bear the law and fulfill it. So now why, in this New Testament age, are you trying to make Gentiles follow the law? Trying to make them become Jewish? We are... John, John is saying, Paul is saying, that council was saying this. Listen, the law could not bring about permanence in the forgiveness of sin. So something greater had to come, as great as the law was, as great as Moses was. And so Moses gave the law, it revealed sin, and it condemned. Christ came and he reveals that he redeems. And he's got the power to bring us into a relationship. The law was given and written down. But grace came as a person and walked around. The law was sent to the people by a servant. Grace and truth came by the Son. And it's so significant, so significant that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 wrote this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, not Moses. Consider Jesus. Here is why. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to his father, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus, though, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now listen to what the writer says. It's Hebrews 3, 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken of later. Later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And I need you to hear this today. You and I live in the greatest time in the history of God's calendar. We live in the covenant of grace. We're no longer do we have to go, boy, didn't measure up today, never could measure up. Now in Christ, guess what? We don't measure up, but he does. And so it's not about me. It's about his life in me and through me that allows you and I to now walk in a way that can please God. Because now it's not about our effort, it's about what's been done. Do you hear that? It's not what you and I do, it's what He has done. And what He has done is He has come to redeem us. And He has been faithful. And here's another thing that's different about Moses and Jesus, and then we'll move on to point two. And it's this. Moses never saw the face of God. He saw the back of God. It's pretty amazing when he saw it, what it did to his body. Moses never saw the face of God, but in Jesus, guess whose face we see? We see God's face. So Moses is not greater. 
because he never saw the face of God. But Jesus is the greatest because he is the very face and image of God. Listen to what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge, watch this, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God, guess where? In the face of Christ. So Moses couldn't usher this in. Moses could say, this is what God has given me. I'm telling you, this is what's to guide us. The law is to guide us. They couldn't follow it because it was pointing to something greater that was to come. And what was greater was grace and truth in the person of God in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that now. Secondly, grace and truth came through Christ. This word came in the second part of verse 17 means this. It means something realized, something that appears upon the scene, something that is there. Now, hear this with me. When John writes this, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It didn't come through Moses. It didn't come through Abraham. It didn't come through David. It did not come through the law. It came through Jesus Christ. And when He came, He appeared. And when He appeared, listen to me, church. When He appeared, you didn't see part of God. You saw God. He is the embodiment. He is the revelation. He is the word. He is the purpose. He is the point. He is the center of everything. And all of it has been ushered into our lives through Christ. And so this word came means that it is realized in Him. Well, what's been realized? For the longest time, there was this great mystery Who's the Messiah going to be? What's he going to be like? And so Paul says this in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Well, what's the glory of the mystery? Then Paul says this, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The old system of the law was one of law, shadows, and burdensome rights. The law had to give way to Christ. And it's important to note here, it's called the law of Moses, but it was the law of God. God gave it to Moses. It wasn't really Moses's that he derived it and he made it up and gave it to the people. But listen to this. Grace and truth belong to Jesus. He possesses them. For he is them. And that's the difference. A big, huge difference of the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace. Moses didn't own the law. It was God's. So God now came in Christ and he owns and possesses because he is grace and he is truth. And he's able because he came to grant that and to give that to you and I. That's why it's glorious to live now. Can you imagine living 3,500 years ago trying to keep? You read, have you read the Old Testament? You read Leviticus lately? Yee, Leviticus, you know. I mean, man, 
Can you imagine trying to keep all of that? And just going, gosh, I can't do it. And then sacrifice after sacrifice after animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. Every year, a high holy day, high holy day. Next year, a high holy day. One person enters in the Holy of Holies. Now in the new covenant of grace, guess what? If you know Jesus in this room this morning, every one of us gets to step into the presence of God. You know why? Because he lives in us. He is in us. So John is wanting to contrast that Jesus is greater than Moses and that grace and truth are greater than the law. And it's so incredibly important for us to embrace this. And this grace that God gives is completely permanent in Christ for God's children. Romans 5.2 Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, this unmerited favor in which we stand. We stand in it and we rejoice, Paul says, in the hope of the glory of God that God's going to bring about all of this. And so grace and truth came through Christ. And when truth comes, I remind you and I today, when truth comes, freedom comes. John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, what I'm telling you about who I am, about who God is, you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth as you abide in the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are all Abraham's offspring. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that we can become free. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's greater than Moses. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the only one who kept the law. He's the point, and he ushered in grace and truth. You see, the law was preparation for redemption, and redemption came in Christ, through Christ, by these two glorious things called grace and truth. Grace and truth. See, truth, if God was just all grace... You know what would happen? We could kind of do what we want to do and God would just kind of let things slide. But truth says this, you got to deal with your stuff. You got to deal with your life. I demand justice. And that's not a good thing for sinners that God's demanding justice for sin. But then God comes along and says, but I provided a way for the demand of justice and it's my son through grace. And this, you didn't earn it, but I've given my son, to you. All right, look at verse 18. Point three. God is fully revealed in Christ. So look what John the Apostle writes. No one, how many people is that? Okay, can we, just, can we get on the same page? How many people is no one? Is it zero? Okay, are we, are we in agreement on that? Okay. No one has ever seen God no one no one has ever seen God 
And then John says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now the Jews never in the Old Testament, even Moses, never saw the full glory of God because if you saw the full glory of God, what would happen to you? You would die. Moses in Deuteronomy 4 is talking to the Jewish people before he gives the second recounting of the law. He said this in Deuteronomy 4.12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. You didn't see a body. You didn't see a form. There was only a voice. So the Jews knew this. You couldn't see God and live. Now the Greek worldview, which was very prevalent back in those days, they thought the same thing. Now they were not worshipers of Yahweh. They were not those who affirmed the glory of Christ and who He was. But Plato, one of their great writers, said this, Never man and God can meet. That's what Plato said. Never man and God can meet. So the Jews had an understanding. You can't see God's glory and live. You will die. No one has ever seen it. You can't see God's glory. The Greek worldview was you can't see God. Never God and man can meet. And now John the Apostle is saying one of the most amazing things that has ever been communicated in the history of the world, ever been written down, ever been proclaimed, ever been preached, ever been sung about. And this is what he says. Nobody has ever, 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 ever seen God but one exception on earth. And that was Jesus. He's the only one who has ever seen God. So the only God, listen, you see what John calls Jesus there? The only God. He doesn't call him a prophet. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made who known God? Known. Now, I need you to hear this because this is absolutely amazing. I think John probably is echoing back to Exodus 32 and 33 where Moses comes to God and says, God, I want to see your glory. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses comes up to the burning bush and, and God tells him, take your shoes off. This is holy ground and you, you can't see the glory of God. It will kill you. Moses hides his face because he recognizes the Jewish mindset was you see God, you die. So Moses hides his face. Now Moses has watched this. And this happens in all of our lives. He has so walked with God for years now that he's at a place where there's such passion in Moses' life, he doesn't care if he dies. His one great passion is, I want to see the greatness of the glory of God. And so he knows the risk. And he goes to God and says, basically, I'm ready to come to you. Show me the glory. Kill me. And then I'm with you. And God says, uh, no, not done quite with you yet, but I'll tell you what I'll do. You come up the mountain, and i got to make two new stone tablets. Moses, remember, because you dropped the other ones that I made? You know, he came down and saw the golden calf and dropped them, and they broke. And So Moses comes up on the mountain, and God says, here's what I'll do. I will pass by you, and I'm going to pick you up. Oh, uh, this must have been amazing. God says that he's going to pick Moses up. Can you imagine just being lifted off the ground. And I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to hide your eyes and when I pass by, then I'm going to uncover your eyes and I'll let you see my back. And then I'm going to speak over you. And I think John has this in mind, this glorious picture in the Old Testament of Moses' desire to see the glory of God. 
but Moses never got to see it. If you'll remember what happened to Moses' head when he walked down the mountain, he was a human light bulb. You know what happened to that human light bulb? It faded. There are other times it says that they, they would cover it up because it brought the heart of the Jews down because the glory didn't remain. Now in Christ, guess what remains? The glory of God. So the apostle says, nobody has ever seen God but God. God's seen himself. The only God who knows the Father, who came here, he has made him known. Only Jesus knew the full nature of God, so therefore Jesus becomes the only qualified person to say, this is what God is like. You want to know what God's like? I'm showing you what God is like. I'm God. I'm showing you what the Father is like. I am revealing this to you. He was, by the way, perfectly suited for this role. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. The prophets got a message from God, and they went and told it to the people. Guess what the first century got? They didn't get a prophet of God. Well, I know Hebrews calls him prophet. He's way more than a prophet, but first century got God himself. Not a, not a prophet. They got God himself walking around, doing great works, speaking, teaching. And you could go see the one. This is, I know I've said this in these weeks, so just, I'm sorry. I just like being a broken record sometimes. You could walk out into your street of your city 2,000 years ago, and you could see the eternal pre-existent, self-existent, co-existent God. He was in a body. You could talk to him. You could touch him. You could ask him questions and he would answer back. The glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. And this uniqueness of what is seen is amazing. Jesus was perfectly suited for this role. The uniqueness of what we see in Christ is incredible. Listen to this, John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing out of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. This intimacy with the Father and Jesus was unbelievable. And so Jesus shows the uniqueness of who God is because Jesus, watch, never went beyond what the Father showed him. Never went beyond what the Father said. So what you and I see in Christ is the very heart and glory and essence of God. So, so no longer do you and I have to ever ask the question, what is God like? What is God like? What's His personality like? i got four places I can tell you to find out. And they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you read those in ink on a piece of paper and you will see the face of Christ. And in that, there will be a transformation from one degree of glory to another 
degree of glory as we behold the one who is the glory of God. Listen to what John said later. First John in a letter, First John 1, 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And the gospel's heart is the cross. And so I believe that if the fullness of God's revelation of himself is seen in Christ, I believe it's also seen in the glory of the cross. And I think an evidence connected with that is, do you remember what Jesus said before darkness entered the land when he hung on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, it's in that moment he became, he, he took our sin in his body and he became the sacrifice on the altar of the cross to please the Father, the demand for justice. He became the offer of grace so that now through him we can know him. And he's the great veil remover. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Since we have such a hope and we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, Paul writing here, with an unveiled face, because we've come to know Christ, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, the same image, we are beholding Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, God showed Moses his backside, but God showed us his face, and his face is Jesus Christ. And what we see is amazing. Can you imagine what it was like that day? If you don't know what God is like, he's teaching in a home one day, and there's four crazy guys who have a friend that they love and they know they got to get him to Jesus. And so they climb a roof and tear the roof off and lower him down. And Jesus said, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room that was religious said, only God can forgive sins. And because Jesus is God, he knew what they were saying inside because he's got an ear like that. And so he said, okay, you got a problem with that? Well, let me show you I am who I am. Hey, son. Take up your mat and go home. Can you imagine being in that room that day where that guy stands up and walks out of the room? Can you imagine what it was like in John chapter 9 in the temple? Jesus finds a blind man and he makes mud and he rubs the mud all over his eyes, tells him to go wash, and he washes and he can see. I can't wait till we get to John 9. Some of the funniest stuff in the Gospels in John 9 that that blind man says to the Pharisees. Hilarious, awesome, amazing things. Listen, folks. 
The best thing that I can say to you and I today is this, is that Jesus is the only God. He's the only one who can reveal to us what God is like. Therefore, this becomes the most trustworthy revelation that we could ever count on. God never lies. And so when Jesus says what he says about the Father, it's because he heard it from the Father. When Jesus did what he did, because he saw that that's what the Father was doing, he never went beyond that. He didn't come here to have his own agenda. He came to submit and to reveal to you and I the glory of God and to rescue us by becoming the sacrifice for our sin. Not only is he the most trustworthy revelation, but next, Jesus This revelation that he gives us of the Father, who the Father is, is all about honor. Listen to what he says, John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Just the Son and the Father have this deepest integrity and commitment to one another, to honor one another. Guess what the Holy Spirit does? Same thing. Same thing. John 15, John 16. Jesus is God, the only God. He is intimate with the Father. This phrase here, who is at the Father's side, some of your translations may say, who is in the bosom of the Father. It just is an Eastern phrase that meant this, intimacy, connection. And the idea is, the only one who can reveal what God is like is God. God's the best person to reveal what God is like. And when Jesus reveals who God is in the New Testament, guess what? He's revealing the depth of the thoughts of God. Why? My wife and I, I tell her things I don't tell anybody. No one. You know that as well. And those that you're really, really intimate with, there's things that come out of your heart in that relationship. So when Christ came here and he revealed the glory of God and he taught, he was revealing the very innermost thoughts of of the father and of the son and the spirit and so if you want to know what kind of things that god would say i got four places i can tell you what god says matthew mark luke and john the letters are all further explanation of this reality so that we would know this so he is the only god who is at the father's side and lastly he is the great revealer of god he has made him known. Now I want to talk about this word known for a second. At this church we do something called exegetical teaching. And exegetical teaching is this. This is what it is. Exegetical teaching is verse by verse, word by word, explanation of what's said. Now when John writes this, he has made him known This is what John says. Jesus, the only unique Son of God, He is the one who has made the Father known. Made God known. So when He, so again, if you and I want to know what God is like, we read the Scriptures. That is the revelation that's there. And so in Christ, as we read that, He defines for us who God is. In Christ, He displays the greatness of the glory of God in the Scripture. And as He does that in our lives, He distributes grace upon grace instead of grace in the place of grace every moment of our lives. Jesus exegetes God. He is the explanation of what God is like. So when you see in the Gospels, 
little children running around Jesus, and he, moms are bringing their kids for Jesus to hold them, you are seeing God. When you see Jesus in Bethany, seeing a sister weeping because her brother Lazarus died four days before, you are seeing God cry. When you see Jesus outside of the tomb of Lazarus, the stone has been rolled away, he has been dead for four days, and he calls forth, Lazarus, you come out, dead man, come out, because I am the resurrection, I am the life. And when Lazarus steps from the darkness into the light in grave clothes, that's God. And when you see Jesus touch a leper and the leprosy just disappears and likely toes appear again and fingers and things that weren't there are there, you see God. So if you were to ask me, what should we do as we leave today? What should I tell you to do? Here's what I tell you to do. Get lost in the pages of the Gospels. Get lost in them. Get lost in them. So here's what we're doing. It's hard to believe it's almost 2020. Christmas is two months away. 2020, starting January. Have y'all heard of the book of, have you heard of the Gospel of John yet? Have y'all heard of that? Anyway, so the first 21 weeks, W4 plan for 2020, we're going to read the Gospel of John. That'll get you ahead of me, but it'll kind of get you an idea of what's there. And as soon as we finish that, we're going to do Matthew. It's 28 chapters. That gets us to 49 weeks. We've got three weeks left, and we're going to close out 2020 with Titus, three chapters. We're kind of call next year. It's always the year of the gospel, but we're calling next year the year of the gospel. And here's why we want to get lost in the pages of the gospels. Why? Because in the gospels, they reveal the glory of Christ. So what do you need to do? You need to see Christ in the gospels. Fourth point, and it's brief. And I just basically kind of told you what it is. The greatest path, therefore, for our lives is what? The Scripture. It's to read the Scripture. If you want to know what God's like, Jesus is the revelation of God. What reveals God? The Gospels do. Paul does as well. I mean, there are explanations of this, but they're also, the, God, the epistles are a little, di- or they're different in some ways. But the Gospels, you want to see the face and you'll see what Jesus is like. There it is. So be in the Word. And walk in the Spirit. And here's why to walk in the Spirit. These are Jesus' words. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from me, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now I'm going to finish up our time. And I don't know if you're going to be blessed with this. The first service didn't get this, okay? So, I love you more. So Jesus said this. 
I only say things that I heard the Father say. So Jesus didn't come down and go, well, I'm just going to kind of have my own teaching book, kind of do my own thing. So every story, whether it was a parable or not, he was revealing and unveiling the heart of God about God's glory. And I think one of the most beautiful pictures that Jesus unveiled of his father was this. There was a man who had two sons, and one son came to the father one day, and he said, Father, give me now all the material stuff that I'm going to get when you're dead. And you see, the father knew that he could make the son stay by saying, no, I'm not giving you the stuff. But the father knew that there's never real love unless you choose love. And so the father gave him his inheritance and the son went away to a distant country. And he went to the distant country and he used all the hard-earned money that the father and the riches the father had and he spent it on riotous living. He squandered it all, wasted it all. Well, a famine came to that country, and that's what happens every time we squander what God has given us. Famine comes. And there's starving and there's hunger that's present. Well, he's in a foreign country. He's not a citizen of the country. Nobody cared about him. He couldn't eat. So he went and he hired himself out to a pig farmer, which is a really bad thing for a Jewish boy to do, to feed pigs. That's how bad his life got. Just throwing the slop out to the pigs one day and all of a sudden the fog of his rebellion kind of drifted away and you know what his first thought was in that moment how good it was back at the father's house and so he said to himself I'm going to go back home and he memorized a prayer a saying and this is said when I get home this is what I'm going to say and I think every step on the way back he was memorized it he refined it got it got it just right and this was His saying, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. And he memorized it, got back. Well, something interesting happened one day. As the father, it seems like, is sitting on the front porch. And I think he probably sat there every day. And he looked down the road seeing if a figure would appear on the road coming home. I think there's some days he saw something there and his heart raced. Is today the day? It wasn't the sun. But there was a day that a figure came and got closer and closer. And I love the revelation of the Father from Jesus. This is not what Jesus said. The Father didn't scream from the porch, you stupid kid! Told you, told you, you idiot. You weren't going to find life up there. You're going to find life here. This is what it says. He did this. And he ran. And he ran to the middle of that road. And he put his arms around the sun. And the sun's memorized his speech. He pictured this moment, and he just starts saying to the father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like a servant. And the father is hugging him. He's kissing him. He has not bathed, by the way, in quite a while. And he's hollering out to everybody, and the son just keeps saying, you know, because it's our words that's going to move God's heart. We have so fooled ourselves that we are so important. He is important. And the son just keeps saying, 
But Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And all the Father's doing is saying, you're my son. You're my son. And he's hollering out, go get the ring that's the family ring. My son doesn't have shoes. Put shoes on him. Get the robe. Let's robe him. You know that calf that we've been fattening up? Barbecue time. Do you hear that? Do Do you feel that today? Jesus never said anything that he didn't know the Father had said. And this revelation says this is who God is. He's a God who loves people who squander life. He loves them. And I believe in this room right now, in this moment, right here, spiritually, he'd run to you if you're ready to come home. But you need to come home. And as you come, he'll meet you. He'll meet you. I promise you, he'll meet you. But we have to come and say, I'm tired of being in control. See, John's taken 17, 18 verses to say to you and I, this is who I am. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And I would say to you and I today, the greatest thing that we need is him, Jesus more and more and more and more of Jesus. And so right where you sit today, and you can run home in your heart, because you know the distance from God is not measured in miles. It's measured in the condition of our heart. If you in your heart step out and run home to him, come back from the pig slop, he'll meet you right there. And do you see what he did? He'll, if you're a girl, he'll kiss you and say, my daughter, my daughter has come home. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is who He is. And we're going to spend the next several years just seeing the unveiling of the glory of God in the Gospel of John in actual real stories. All right, let's pray.